you know, just like physical illness, mental illness can be overcome. We just got to inspire people to believe that. The mental health community and the firearms industry spent way too much time running parallel to each other without communicating. It's time we change the narrative and destroy the stigma that we both face. Walk the Talk America presents Guns and Mental Health, a podcast for firearms owners, clinicians, and the curious public. It's Guns and Mental Health time again, everybody. Thank you for listening. We always appreciate your followership. And today we have Rob Morse, uh, author and host of uh, personal. What is it? Personal defense gun stories. Self defense. Self defense gun stories. And you you have your own podcast. You've been podcasting for a while, and you've run in many circles. And I had the privilege of meeting you at Shot Show back in January before. Before we all uh, locked down in our own homes, and then I think at GRPC most recently, uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 we did. Yeah, you're right. We did cross paths at GRPC. That's that's true. Back in a year ago now, more than a year. Yeah, it's like an eternity because we flying. don't get those anymore, do we? No, we don't. <laughs> well, before we get too far along, we should probably thank Arms Corps for being our continual monthly sponsor, supporting the podcast, supporting all the work that we do. They're a really wonderful company. Mike, you've known their whole operation, their family for many years now. Many years. Um, you know, I, I've, I look back at it. You're not supposed to be friends with your competition. But when I owned Eagle, um, we had the rival 1911, which is Metro Arms in the Philippines. Um, but we used to help each other. We used to help each other because there was plenty of plenty of guns to be sold. Um, so I've known that family forever. I love their support. I love their philosophy. Um, you know, we talk about be more than just a gun company, you know, defend your rights, but also be socially conscious, get ahead of it. Um, not only do they help walk the talk America, but they do a lot of other, uh, charitable actions, you know, throughout all walks of life. I mean, they really do. They, they do things in the Philippines for, uh, people that are in need, you know, they do things for us. We're in need. <laughs> so <laughs> I can't thank them enough. If, if you want to buy a firearm or buy some ammunition and feel good about where you're putting your money and it's not just going to somebody who's just pocketing and doesn't care, then, you know, that's the company to do it with. Yeah. Well, we're proud of, uh, of what they're doing and we're, we're glad to be partnered with them in this mission. So check out armscore.com. It's A-R-M-S-C-O-R.com if you want to learn about their products. Really good ammunition too, by the way. So uh, anyway, enough about them, enough about sponsorships. And uh, we, we want to talk to Rob, who's our guest. And Rob was kind enough to jot down some notes ahead of time, topics we want to cover. And, and he, he's been texting me these uh, tidbits over the last several months. To, uh, it started with email, and I was like, let's, let's move to text messages. It's a little easier. And you, you just have these random free-flowing th- free thoughts on a given day that really make me pause and go, hmm. Yeah, we should consider that. And there have been too many of them to, to compile uh, for the purposes of this show. But 
I don't know where you want to start. I have a few things I'd love to to start with, but maybe we should start with a little deeper introduction. So give your give your verbal resume and you know who you are and where you live and all that stuff, if you wouldn't mind. I was a geek. I now live in southwest Louisiana, worked with high-tech firms across the country. I'm now retired. My wife uh, became fascinated, compelled to study marriage. She was involved in the marriage movement. There was a, uh, that became legislation in California. And I didn't, I thought it's just a political thing. And then somebody threatened my family. Wow. Um, I'm an adoptive parent, a foster parent, um, a bio parent too, for that matter. Um, and so that was Jennifer's, my wife's, uh, real world education, nuts and bolts education. She's a labor economist by training. And she said, wow, what we do to our kids can help them or damage them for generations. So she takes the family uh, tremendously seriously. You guys know it. You see it in your own kids. You see it in your neighbor's kids. And when my family was threatened, I went, oh, this is very carefully crafted, the threats right on the edge of being actionable by the police. And a pastor that I knew, uh, turns out he was the chaplain for the uh, San Diego County Sheriff's Department, said, Rob, you should learn to defend yourself. I'd learned to shoot years earlier, um, but that was 22 small board target shooting, which was absolutely useless for defense on the street. And then I went to step onto um, armed defense, and I found out that step was missing. In, Calif- in my particular county in California, at that time, you could not do that. Hmm. And then I started to study it. That was 10 years ago or more. And I've been studying away at it ever since. What, do you, what are you learning when you say you're studying armed defense? What, what's, I think I, I want to frame that question uh, so it doesn't seem like it's totally out of blue. Um, in my head... I'm, I, I don't know if I'm speaking for more people than just myself, but it seems to me that armed defenses carry a gun, know how to put lead on target in an extreme circumstance, like very, very clear, very cut and dried, not a lot of context or nuance. What, what do you mean when you study armed defense? I wondered if I was alone, and it turned out in San Diego County, each week there'd be 50 or more people that were victims of aggravated assault. Almost universally, they were denied the right of armed defense unless they were a, a connected lawyer, uh, a jeweler, uh, you know, someone in a high priced industry like that or politically connected. They were disarmed. And I went, wow, this is this. Is, it's an inconvenience for me. My family turned out to be OK. Some of these people are getting killed because they're disarmed. Wow. Hmm. And then. I looked at, well, how prevalent is that? I'm a numbers guy. And you go, is that just a few people in San Diego? It turns out to be millions in the U.S. every year. So, and then how big is that million compared to how we die from other causes? Um, Wow, it's it's a serious issue. It's, and and for example, the, the thrust of this program, mental health for gun owners, can we find the, prophylactic, uh, that word's preventative ahead of the time. Can we prevent suicide by addressing emotional uh, crises in the gun community? Well, how big is that? 
You know, um, if we took all the guns away, would things get better or worse? Those, you, you have to ask those questions. Yeah, it's interesting for me because people ask me all the time and I, I get to walk through so many different circles these days, not just in the echo chamber of the gun industry, but, you know, what's your what's your end game? What's your goal? And it's hard because um, I, I tell them I'm honest. I'm like, look, I'm not I'm not sure that I can bring suicide down or walk the talk. America is going to bring suicide down overall, but we could do our best to get the number down that's suicide by firearm or at least take a shot at it, you know, cast a huge wide net. Um, but it's something that I think about all the time because people just tend to think, Oh, you know, that broad term of suicide prevention, uh, you know, Jake and I both know we've talked to people, maybe suicide isn't preventable and you could do your best, but in the end, maybe it isn't. Um, because of our culture, we know that there's something called armed defense. We hardly know that there's something called mental health. It's if, if we think armed defense is caricatured in the media, holy cow, the, the soundbite picture we get from it, from the entertainment media is, is really embarrassing. My name is Whoops. Kat. I quit my <laughs> unfulfilling job and opened a cat cafe. Wow. <laughs> Well, there we go. Cat Cafe. I was uh, clicking through is some that links. foreshadowing? <laughs> I, I'm quitting my job and going to a cat cafe. Um, man, you know, talk about media. Uh, it's like we get bombarded with ads and we're constantly clicking X's just to read the article. I was I was trying to read one of the links that Rob sent through and damned if Cat Cafe didn't uh, pop up. I need to apply for a job there. <laughs> Uh, no, would, no, that would be terrible. It's not, that's not spelled quite the same way, Cat, Mike. Cats make me no. sneeze. I, in fact, I, weren't you a bouncer there? <laughs> yeah, back in the the, the mid nineties. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, you're talking about caricaturizations of of very important subjects. Mental health gets caricaturized, I think, in a lot of ways. I think we're starting to get away from the creepy. Uh, you know, prototypical '60s insane asylum type stuff. We're not we're right. not labeling people as crazy and dangerous anymore. Although our our language in some of our laws definitely alludes to that. They they lump you know the mentally ill in with other dangerous people. For example, in Nevada's background check law, which is revolting. Um, but to your point, I think now what we're seeing is is this overindulgence of mental health. Uh, needs to be cared for, self-care, take care of yourself. And and it's shifted all the way all into this like hyperbolic positive vibes only thing. Almost as ah. a as a as a com a way to combat people not being well. It's like, well just just paper it over with like happy thoughts. And while there is some neurological studies to support that you can control your your emotions and your mood by where you direct your attention. It has to be authentic. You can't just be ignoring the negativity in your life, pretending it doesn't exist, and, and trying to put on a happy face. That's that's super toxic, and that'll, that'll really ruin people pretty quickly. So I think the characterization now of mental health is like, just go see a therapist, <laughs> as if it's that easy. Like, you know, in a place like Nevada where we're dead last in behavioral health provision, you're, you're waiting in line for a couple of weeks. 
And then it's, well, we'll jump on, on online, right? Talkspace or BetterHelp or whatever those, those online things are with the text therapy. Well, that's not evidence-based. Uh, that's somebody's good idea. Um, and they're making a gazillion dollars at it. But we don't know if it's eff- effective or, or worthwhile. So um, I think in everybody's hurry to address the problem, they're leapfrogging over the very nuanced conversation that's required on how to adjust, address the problem. And I've said multiple times that my people, the, the master's degree holding, certificate license wielding people, are not the be all end all. Um, there's, you know, there's been 40,000 years of, of evolution in Homo sapiens that somehow got it to this point in the world without our profession, which has only been around for 100, 120 years or so. So, you know, somehow we as a community managed to figure it out. And uh, it raises the question of why is it getting quote unquote worse now? Are we measuring it better? Are people just self-identifying or is it, or are we really getting sicker? And and I think that bears a, a dialogue, probably not for this podcast, but so, somebody really needs to, to dive into that and not just come up with some, again, caricaturized, nice little packaged piece of data or a study that, you know, then becomes our, uh, according to Hoyle wisdom uh, on the entire pantheon of what could constitute a mind or its wellness or illness. Well, we, we have some clues and you're we right. Do. The the study hasn't been done yet, but um, I'm going to compare myself to my grandfather. My grandfather was one of the few people who left his Germany. He moved halfway around the world, but after that move, once he'd established himself, he wouldn't have thought to move hundreds of miles away. His children did. My children mm-hmm. take it for granted. And then when they run into problems, they can largely be on their own. These days, what is it? You're going to have seven, uh, how many different careers and seven jobs in your lifetime? Mm-hmm. I used to work high-tech startups and they dropped like flies. You, um, that was the, the expected result. But a lot of people, you know, you've been with somebody 13 years and the company blows up or they decide that uh, earnings this quarter don't need you in, for three months and now you go find a new job. That that upsets people. Um, and rightly so. It, it upsets their, their self-worth, their social situation, the people they talk to. And maybe they find themselves adrift because their friends were at work. And they don't have family and the other social connections. I'm 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 quoting a guy who should write the book, Jake. That's a that's a really really good point. Um, you know, you think back generations past, we had a career as identity. You know, it was like Joe the farmer, right. and Joe the farmer was a farmer because his dad was a farmer because his dad was a farmer, and so on. And, and there was stability and predictability not only in the in the job. Um, but you get good at it too. You get good at monitoring the weather and crop rotations, but your community is connected to that as well. I think what, what we've largely done in today's America is we've taken that career as identity and applied it to things that are, that are not stable anymore. Like you just highlighted. Um, now, so what do you do? You, You can't, you can't beg your, your corporate bosses to keep you employed for 30 years and keep the pension in place because they've got different, uh, I guess, uh, you know, kings to follow too and, and, and masters to, to serve. So what do we do? We combat that with something called resilience, right? We, we learn to tolerate the, the distress and the unpredictability. But I wonder, to your point, I wonder if that's just 
not hitting the mark because fundamentally at our core as human beings, we crave stability, connectiveness, predictability. And that's, that's basically everything the world is throwing at us, the complete opposite now. Uh, shift, change, everything's disposable, uh, you know, including our relationships. And, and I wonder if, if, at a, if at a biological level that's, that's something that we're, we're upsetting the apple cart for. It's a good, good topic. I have a question for you, Rob. I kind of want to switch gears just for a second because I don't want to. Okay, sure. Um, you said you re- your family received death threats, right? Or uh, maybe right. a threat, right? Um, and we always we always go, okay, as as men too, especially in the firearms industry, it's like threaten me, okay, whatever. I'm gonna go get my gun and, and what? How did that play in the mental health of you guys as a couple, right? So your wife gets a threat. You, which is basically threatening you as well. Um, then it becomes this thing like, hey, maybe we should go out and get a gun. Like, what was the dynamics there, the discussion that you had with her? Because uh, not everybody will think that way. You know what I mean? Uh, I remember my, my, my first wife, uh, she had a lot of problems with me having a gun in the house. <laughs> and that's, that's what paid our bills. Uh, you know, but we had this strange dynamic and then, then we, we got robbed one night, you know, someone broke into our garage and actually was in our home and that changed it for her. Um, you know, went from, okay, I get it now. Did, was it, were you guys on the same page? Uh, y- yes. And this was in the middle of a political campaign and we have a family and did we have foster kids at that time? I'm not, I'm not sure, but she was very busy and it was like, I've got this problem and I go, you know, maybe, um, I think I know some resources. Let me check. And it was just a matter of, of balancing loads within the family and had, had the answers been different, maybe the response would have been different. Um, we found out you couldn't get a concealed, you could buy a firearm, you could have it in the home. You literally couldn't take it into your garage if the garage door was open. You couldn't carry out the trash or go get the mail if the, if the mailbox was at the curb. Uh, you couldn't mow your yard unless it was a fenced. So those are California definitions of private property and the areas around a home. Uh, but it did introduce me to some fascinating people. I love the firearms community, particularly in San Diego. A lot of military. Um, there, <laughs> there was um, this chaplain for the police department was also like a deacon in a local church. And I got to meet him and the church goes, yeah, we're, we're taking about 300 men and boys out into the hills to have a father son shoot in the desert. Would you like to come just to see how we behave around our kids and our mall? Yeah, and it was beautiful. That's cool. And it's, it always it's fascinating to me to hear how people, especially because I I'm like an ungun gun guy who got into the right. firearms industry, kind of just wide eyed taking it all in. It, it, I always like to hear the stories of how it starts and mentally, right? Because it, I think when you when you buy a gun, um, your first purchase. There is a, you're different. Yeah. I mean, it's not like you go around like, you know, like you're looking for trouble, but it's a huge responsibility to take on, you know, um, it's, it's not a toy. 
it's, it's, it's destructive. It can be and, and, and powerful at the same time. Right. Um, and it just, it fascinates me to hear, especially when people are like, I never had a gun. You know, now I do. Now I became a gun owner and not necessarily were fascinated by guns. You know, that's, that's another thing. Like Rob Pincus and I talk about that all the time. You know, he always was fascinated by guns. Really? Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I had no problem with guns. I think every kid, you know, likes to play with water guns and everything like that. But I, I didn't have that. Um, I'm really fascinated by the mechanics of this thing. I knew what it was, but, um, you know, now obviously I got hundred guns, right? <laughs> I'm that guy now. Uh, but you know, just, I love hearing the stories of how it progressed. Cause like, look at you now, you know what I mean? It, it was off of a, a threat, you know, you go and, you know, and now here you are. <laughs> well, and, and you're really right, Mike, in the sense that had that community been different, I, I probably would have, they could have turned me off. Right. They, they really could have. Um, but they were so responsible and the, he, I, I wish others could have the experience. <clears throat> There's this stereotypical, uh, Andy Griffith Mayberry sort of scene where some uncle very carefully sits down with an 18 year old with an eight year old and goes, okay, here, this is, I want to teach you to shoot this little cricket rifle and we'll go through the steps and be careful. And the kid's all wide-eyed and can barely hear what's going on. And over a couple days, pretty soon he's recording the, uh, he's echoing the safety rules right back to you. And so are dozens of other of his peers. So that's not far off from how I introduced my kids to it. Um, Elijah, who's five now, um, just before he was five, he, he memorized the, the four rules. Uh, and I know Rob Pincus has a, has a hang up about the four rules. Uh, but it's, it's a good foundation and he, and he knew him and he had to know him and what they meant, not just, uh, mm-hmm. regurgitate them, but he had to know what they meant before I put a gun in his hands. And then we did, and we, we went out into the desert and, um, taught him about all the, the the way that the rules make sense and where the target's set up and what's behind the target and and it's tough keeping a kid's finger off the trigger, um, but <laughs> but he got it and and I think that there's merit to that when we slow down and we make education a priority and don't just lecture people about what they're supposed to think. We don't we don't want conformity. We want we want people who are still able to think for themselves and speak for themselves but do it in the context of what has been long established as constituting responsible behavior, right? And it sounds like that community that you stepped into was welcoming, but also had some fundamental principles that weren't up for debate. Um, and and I think that when we can communicate that kind of message, it, it sets a, a precedence of, of credibility too. And that, all, that becomes even more warming and welcoming. So with that, yeah, go ahead. You know, isn't that interesting? Um, if you want to get attention, go to a shooting range and mess up a safety rule. Mm-hmm. And you will feel like, um, yeah, you, you will get a lot of attention. It may be uncomfortable. And part of that is, look, we've been at this for a few hundred years. We've paid for our wisdom and blood. And we're trying to help you be safe. We, we make these rules very rigid. They're in depth, meaning you can 
break even a couple of them and be okay. But please don't break too many at one time or somebody's going to get hurt. Yeah. So that being said, we've got record setting, historical record setting numbers of people now owning firearms for the first time in the middle of a pandemic wherein government lockdowns of most services have rendered training uh, very inaccessible at best. And and it, one of the things that we discuss is in our presentations with Walk the Talk and when we're talking to all these groups and we're, we're doing the classes is we raise the question of how many of these new, however many million new gun owners are uh, storing responsibly, handling responsibly, getting training. So knowing that people are probably reaching for firearms at a time, at the, for the first time in their lives, at a time that they're in distress or at least perceived distress to through the lens of civil disobedience and civil unrest and, um, you know, and, and, and taught calls of defunding the police. And it's like, if the police aren't there, then who's going to be there? It might as well be me. And so, so this is all a very emotionally reflexive response. And I'm pointing to my, my head here in the film, if you can't see it, like, um, the limbic system reacts to tell us to do something. And if it's a fear-based response based on a legitimate threat to, you know, self or others, then we want to respond to that. And it seems like more people are picking up the idea of gun ownership. How do we welcome them into the community without caricaturizing it and saying, oh, you're just, you're just snapping out of fear and you're you know, like, you don't know what you're doing or we judge them because they're not doing the right thing or they're buying the wrong gun because that type of thing goes on in our, our community too. How do we, how do we welcome them in uh, and make sure they're doing it the right way uh, while also simultaneously not thinking that the firearm is going to alleviate their distress in and of itself. Right. Right. Mike, did you, did you want to take a bite at that or should non, I jump non, in? Non-rhetorical question requiring an answer. No, please jump in. <laughs> okay. Um, we saw the exact same thing. I, I agree with your characterization of it. And uh, I'm on the Polite Society podcast. It's an ensemble cast. It used to be called Politics and Guns, but we'd go to guys like Mike who run firearms industry, uh, who are in the firearms industry, said, Mike, let's talk about politics and guns. And you thought we'd said venereal disease and taxes because the word politics and they go, ah, not in public. Anyway, uh, we knew that there was a public issue there. We put out, was it 110 videos, Guns 101? Um, and we asked everybody who could find uh, Pincus, top of it, you know, high-speed trainers, low-speed trainers, um, North, South, East, West, guys, girls, uh, young, old, and they'd come back a couple times. Oh, you know, here's my take on how you choose a firearm. Here's my take on storage. So, so it's there. One, it's out there. Guns 101 is where we want to send people if they're listening. Yeah. And those are all still up on YouTube. Uh, yeah. We, we worked them into our presentation last time. Somebody asked that, and that's what Rob offered was the, the Guns 101 series. Um. But, but you you know what? Um, so I was uh, helping out. I, I had to go get my concealed carry permit renewed. The instructor goes, you're good at this. Come help over here on the line. Okay. You, normally the conversation is a little longer than that, but wasn't that time. And there's grandma who's had guns forever and her gun doesn't fit her. She's trying to use a snubby 
as a qualification tool. She can't see the sights without her reading glasses. She can't see it through her uh, range safety glasses, and she's not hitting the target. So we just, here, here's a little bit longer, 22, and your hand fits it, and it's easier to press, and you're hitting the target. You can carry what you want, but that's an expert's weapon. It'll take you some time. I think you'll be happier if you hit the target now. That, that's just been our experience with our other students. And come back to this other gun when you're ready. So it, it, we're all grandma to a, to a matter of degree. You can, and I, we all remember this. Somebody said, here, kid, why don't you shoot this? And we went, okay, but I'm only going to shoot that every now, you know, not very often because that was more of a handful that I'm ready to shoot. I, it's funny you bring that up. I have an, uh, oh, all my life I've been in these situations, uh, especially since the first time I shot a gun in the firearms industry. Everyone thought I knew what I was doing because they thought, hey, you know, he comes from this background. His family owns, you know, a firearm importing company. I'm sure they've had him on the range a lot. Uh, but I was, I was in Pittsburgh, and I, I, I brought a girl that I was dating to the range. Um, you know, we wanted to do some shooting and the owner of the place, because I was in the firearms industry was coming down with different things for us to shoot. And he brings down the, the Smith and Wesson 500. I'd never shot that thing. And, um, I go to, I go to shoot it first. I told her, I was like, let me shoot this first before you try. I don't want you to pop an implant or something like that. <laughs> and I, I shoot and it literally, I, I hit just bullseye, total luck. Right. And I just ended it right there. I go, you don't want to shoot this thing. (laughs) (laughs) And she's like, yeah, I think that's a little bit too much, but it's funny because once again, I had to act like I knew what I was doing. And I also like got, it was just pure luck. It was straight shot. You know what I mean? It was because I was so tense. And <laughs> so I was grandma. I had no business shooting that gun at that time without the, you know, but of course I, I was just like, I got to show, I got, you know, he's like, hands it to me. I'm like, Oh, cool. <laughs> Smith and Wesson 500 freaking cannon. <laughs> I have cats and testosterone poisoning. Watch. Yeah. <laughs> I was just like, Oh man, I, I couldn't recreate that shot again. If I tried, <laughs> So I'm not going to shoot it twice. <laughs> um, and Jake, you're right. And, and, well, and you're wrong. No, it won't solve the broader political problems of our culture and upheaval. On the other hand, now maybe mom feels more comfortable going to the store late at night with her kids because she's got her carry permit. Mm-hmm. We, li- we like people to be empowered. We want them to do it smart. Yeah. And, and, and part of the smart, I think, is uh, knowing what de- defense really is. It's not it's not purposely engaging. You know, um, you know, we, a lot of the training that goes on in good professional circles is about de-escalation and and resolving conflict, not inciting it or seeking it out or escalating conflict. And I think that 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 there may be a misconception of, in the broader public about what it means to carry a firearm. What it means to carry a firearm is that's as Kevin Dixie says, when you have no other choice and, and we really mean no, all other choices are exhausted. Um, and I don't know that that message has been, 
pushed hard enough or loud enough into mm. broader broader public, especially non-gun owning society, uh, where they, you know, I think they have this in conception that if you're carrying a gun, you're looking for trouble. And it's like, no, no, actually, it couldn't be further from the truth. Um, we're not we're not right. looking to engage in combat at Walmart just because somebody starts getting loud and boorish. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the first thing you do is leave, right? That's, you know, uh, as they as they teach, you know, police officers when they're off duty, you don't put yourself on duty by announcing your presence and trying to solve the thing. You you become the best witness you can and get on the phone to the dispatchers. Um, so we, we want to try to communicate that message, too, that just simply having a firearm on one's person does not mean that you suddenly go around being, you know, John Rambo or or. Schwarzenegger and commando like <laughs> you don't you don't look for problems um, I'm, I'm gonna tell funny stories because we get to um, you're absolutely right one of the instructors on my podcast says you you thought this was a concealed carry class I'm gonna teach you how to run away that's great I'm gonna teach you when to run away and then if you're not fast enough I'll teach you how to use your gun um uh <laughs> And in a hand-on-hand class, I ran out of the dojo twice. <laughs> it, was, it was kind of fun. Um, but we, you and I do know the guy who, where somebody is off trying to show how big and bad they are, and the other guy who's you know, been there and done that goes, oh, really? Um, like I know a lawyer who likes to fight MMA, and somebody's at a bar and just full of themselves, and he goes, Oh God, I, go ahead, hit him. You know, he, he's being the devil in this guy's ear and you go, don't do this. I know how it's, you know how it's going to end. I know how it's going to end. Don't do um, And the other guys are knife fighters who go, you want to get close and like take us. Oh, come on. Yeah. Get yeah. closer and take a swing at me, please. And they're, they're another bunch of scary guys. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> So some of the things that we've talked about, uh, I want to do, dive into this a uh, little more heady stuff. So you wrote in the um, in the show notes here, I just pulled it up, the things you wanted to talk about is um, people like to feel in control of their own lives, and I couldn't agree more. This year we've been pushed by huge outside forces. Part of COVID is real, and part of our response is the product of manipulative politicians. We've been told how to work, how to play, where we can go, and how to live when we get there. What do you what do you mean by that? And and what is the what is the implication there? Part of the great American experience was the westward migration, and it, in a, to a considerable extent, wrote our American culture as distinct from the urban culture of the East Coast, and then later of the West Coast when it was de- uh, developed. And our post-World War II experience was young men and women set off across the United States, in some cases across the world, to make their fortune. And now we're told, no, you get to stay home in your mom and dad's basement. And we <laughs> were lost there. We, um, there's only so much we want to watch on, on Netflix. Uh, so we've been robbed of a lot of our dreams, a lot of our plans, part of our economic future, because there's serious economic consequences when you shut down an economy. We can talk about the epidemiological seriousness of COVID. Um, 
And I think we're poorly served by the mainstream media. We were told that 3% of us were going to die. And now it's a f- less than 10. It, it's 10 times less, even including people who are elderly overall. And the disease is virtually nothing if you're under, what is it, 45? I think you have to be 50, 55. You know, what's interesting about COVID is the people it kills demographically by age group are exactly the same people who die of everything else. Right. Right. I I don't understand what's going on. And it's very, that's saying something because I like to, I like to think that I have a pretty decent grasp of what goes on in culture and society. And I read a lot and I listen a lot and I, I try to consider myself pretty open-minded, I guess. And I can't for the life of me figure out what's happening because we've, we've now accumulated a ton of information that we didn't have in March and, and, but we're behaving the same. And that, that, that befuddles me. One angle of it, I think, is that we as a society, as a culture, particularly in the West, we have lost the ability to embrace death for what it is. And so Western medicine has largely said, you're not allowed to get sick. And if you get sick, you'll be cured and everybody will live forever. And so when we're faced with a, a disease that's new and we don't have a Western medicine response to it, and that, that has to be developed, and now we've developed this, this vaccine, or several vaccines now, to tackle this thing, um, it's like we've lost our, our ability to tolerate not knowing. And, yeah. and that's not good because it, it speaks to our overall mental illness patterns of being unable to tolerate distress and not being able to embrace mystery and needing certainty and guarantees and predictability and all those things. Um, but then when something really bad happens, whether it's a pandemic or an explosion or whatever it is, instead of mourning and grieving and moving on, we search for answers. And then even when given the answers, they're not satisfying because what we've got is a very limbic emotional response. And we're trying to solve that with logic. And the two parts of the brain don't talk to each other. So now mm-hmm. imagine that you've got a several generations worth of cultural belief embedded into into people. And you have this emotional thing happening and we're trying to find answers for it. And it's like, well, we don't, we don't have answers yet. We got to wait and be patient. Like, I don't want to wait and be patient. Well, what do we do while we're waiting and trying to be patient? Stay home and do nothing. But then we're acutely aware of the the sacrifice that goes along with that. Like you just listed the, the economic ruin, the people losing their jobs and the children falling behind in academics because they don't get in-person instruction and all sorts of things. All for what? Like logically, what is, what are we doing? Saving lives? How many? We don't. We can't count the the number of lives saved. That's a null hypothesis, well, you know. So uh, it's, it's okay. You and and you're talking as if we were a community. We'd gather around a table. We'd argue it out. We'd uh, bring up different points of view. Consider them. Come back. Do this time after time. Right. Oh, you mean like a family around the dinner table? But that's not where we are. We are a media-driven culture where our elites can't have a solution if it takes more than 30 seconds to explain. Right. We won't accept it. 
Right. And and had our political elite said, you know, this is tough. Go about your business. Do the best you can. Judge the condition of your family, their health, and their need uh, to be out in the world. Do what's best for you. And then a news reporter goes, oh, so you're telling people to go out and get killed. How heartless of you. You know, the the emotional gotcha game that the media engages in uh, dumbs down our political discourse. We do see there were countries that said basically that you're smarter than we are. You know your situation better than we are. Do what's appropriate for you and grandma. Uh, um, we saw states in the U.S. who did that. And they had some Chinese meatpacking plants Chinese management bought them and they were some of the uh, initial, you know, uh, zeroth generation sources for COVID early in the year. And again, they stuck to their guns. Here's something that I have seen very bright people make bad mistakes. The, the world's best estimates of what to do in COVID, it turns out possibly, in fact, probably cost lives. We told children to stay home. People under 35 are virtually immune to the disease, so they get it. In in order that they don't spread it, we want them all to get together. Kids, go to school, get the disease. You'll have the sniffles on Tuesday. You'll be back at school on Wednesday. And unless you're living with grandma, you're fine, and now you're no longer going to spread this disease. And we don't have to keep grandma living in a bottle as long once we've had the disease and are no longer vectors for it. So... You're right. That's not a cute answer in a bottle. And we're not politically as smart as we think we are. Yeah, I don't think we're as homogenized as we think we are either. And that's that's manifest manifested itself <laughs> over the summertime with divisiveness that really probably doesn't need to exist. And, um, I, and, I, and I'm searching for a solution here. And I think the solution is deference. You know, it's it's to to yield to people. And maybe admit that you, you're not as smart as you think you are and you don't know every damn thing and listen before speaking. But I don't know how to, to tell that to the Twitter sphere you know, that, that's, uh, that's more convinced in telling people what they believe rather than seeking to understand. You know, there's, there's this trying to, trying to be understood than, than seeking to understand thing going on. So I don't know how to communicate that when, when it seems like all we're doing is pouring gasoline on the fire, not to mention the, you know, the misinformation that's purposely peddled by certain people who have certain agendas. Um, that will probably always exist. And now that we have this disaggregated uh, forum called the Internet, you know, they all have a bullhorn now. Um, right. So, so it becomes an, an issue of who do you trust, and you know, and how do you, how do you trust them? How do you know when trust and confidence have eroded in things like media that have previously been trustworthy and have now uh, in more cases than I care to admit, have taken advantage of that and and probably purposely, intentionally leveraged it in all the wrong places. Uh, political leaders, you know, used to be trustworthy by and large. You know, they worked together. Uh, it wasn't so long ago that Congress would have lots and lots and lots of bipartisan legislation. I mean, in my lifetime, and now we don't. It's just gridlock. Um, so science now has been politicized, and so science now has become not untrustworthy. And 
and data gathering and medicine. It's like, what, what is go- law? You know, these, these pillars of society that are slowly eroding. How do we get it back? How do we, how do we establish ourselves to say, you can trust me. And I, and I don't know that there's a solid answer that's really concrete other than to say, pretend like you don't know. Remain humble and curious, and that will beget trust because you're not pushing something upon someone. You're not stealing their autonomy by telling them what to think. You're just saying, I don't know, but here's my idea. I'm willing to listen to yours. How much do you think, though, that if it was any other president, even a Republican president, you know, take George W., someone like that, right, that this would have played out differently? Because I felt like this was a double down situation no matter what. And then, you know, just how polarizing Trump is. And I grew up listening to Trump all my life growing up in Jersey, you know, because he was just he was part of the New York, New Jersey scene. uh, And everybody went to him for everything. Um, But, you know, if it's somebody else and it's handled differently and he doesn't say like, hey, only a couple of people have it, it'll be gone you know, in a couple right. days. I mean, maybe this plays out so much differently. I mean, I don't know. Probably. I think about that a lot, you know, Pro- probably, but like, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of going back and what ifing because it doesn't matter. We're here now. And, and where we are now is a place where we have to start to restore trust in one another and, and faith in our institutions. And, that probably needs to be earned in some degree, but also it needs to be granted. And, and when, when I talk about trust, when I talk about any construct like faith or uh, forgiveness or trust or um, respect or any of those things that can't be defined or quantified, but they, but they exist, um, I, I always try to say, look, they're binary. You either have it or you don't. There's no gray area. There's no in between. There's no earning toward. There's no building to. And he's like, I have a little bit of trust or I have a lot of respect. It's like, no, you either do or you don't. And the the person giving it over is a hundred percent in charge of how much they give and when they give it. So if I say, well, I don't, I don't trust my politicians. So that's a me issue, because otherwise I'm setting some some mercurial. Uh, moving target for them to hit when they probably don't even know I exist anyway. So I take, you know, random assembly person here in the state of Nevada. I'm like, I don't trust her. Uh, She's got to earn my trust. Well, I'm the one setting the target. So therefore I can set it wherever I want. If I say, I don't, you know, I don't respect him. I'll respect you if you give me 20 pushups or I'll respect you if you give me 200 (laughs) pushups. Well, I'm the one setting the bar. So it could be zero pushups. I can just respect you for being a human being. Um, Now, on the other side of that coin is if you if you violate that, I don't have to give you any. And I and I think we're stuck between this this paradox of of it's up to me to decide how much trust I extend and how much credibility I give, um, with a narrative that says they have to do something to perform to earn it. There's some some task oriented uh, uh, path by which they they get that, and it's like no. No, you, you just decide at, at some point whether or not you're giving it. So I can say, hey, I, I trust President-elect Biden, or I don't. But I don't get to say I trust him a little bit in this one area and not at all in this other area. Because it's like handing the keys of the car to your, your son and saying, I only trust you a little bit with the car. Only go down the street and come back. Well, I'm having him the keys. He can go wherever he wants. Oh, right. 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 So I, I think uh, we just need, you- we just need to humble ourselves, but that's me. 
you, it, it is you, and you said something. I, I want to go to the cultural underpinnings of it. It seems like we used to trust more. Politicians have more power than they used to. They always had more than we gave them. But these days, I mean, there are places you can't move a tree in your backyard without a government permit. Um, in my life, I found out that the, the lights in the ceiling are regulated by government. Oh, those are illegal light bulbs now. We've had government intrusion on a scale that's really, really grown. And therefore, those powers, that ability to regulate, is being sold by politicians to special interests. There are people who deeply care and will vote based on what light bulbs are allowed in homes. Couldn't we, as you say, couldn't we just back off, let people live the way they want, because maybe what they need to do is different than what I think they should do. I think that retreats to the the COVID argument of like, well, if you're becoming a vector for disease, um, and my job as I see it is to keep everyone alive, uh, which isn't possible anyway, but, but if I see it that way, or my job is to protect all of the environment all the time, and one of those ways is to ban mercury-filled, you know, compact fluorescent light bulbs, um, then my job is to tell you, because you're not smart enough to figure it out, to align yourself with me, uh, <laughs> that, that I have to compel you through, through legislative force. And, and I think that, again, that goes back to failing to be humble. Um, if I'm pushing my agenda onto you, I'm therefore usurping your liberty, your autonomy. In counseling, we have five ethical precepts. Autonomy, justice, fidelity, non-maleficence, don't hurt anybody, and beneficence, help somebody. Whenever one of those starts to, to effervesce above the others, you're inherently stepping on something else. So, for example, it's it's popular to be about justice these days, and you throw whatever adjective in front of you want that you want in front of the justice word, you know, social justice, economic justice, environmental justice, criminal justice, all these justices, right? But when you're doing justice, meaning you're you're advocating, you're doing the right thing, you're acting on behalf of that's that's justice. You're inherently stepping on someone else's autonomy. So let's take. Uh, Let's take grandma, for example, who's, you know, we want to protect from a COVID death. Grandma still has autonomy to decide for herself what she wants to do. And if my justice is to keep her alive by acting on her behalf, insert reason why, I'm inherently trampling her autonomy by doing so. If I'm if I'm doing it through legislative fiat or executive order or whatever is going on. So Ideally, in the counseling profession, all those would be in balance with one another. They'd all be equal. I happen to think that autonomy is the one that needs the most attention because it's the easiest to violate, especially as clinicians. We tend to lean more toward like telling people how to live their lives and what they should do instead of letting them walk their walk themselves, And which is sometimes painful to watch because it's hard to watch people make mistakes, especially if you think you know best for them. But that's where we've gotten to now. We've got all these competing interests that think they know best for other people. And it's like, come hell or high water, by God, they will be heard and you will be compelled to follow in. So where do we get to have the discussion about balance? Where, where do gun rights bump up against mental health treatment, bump up against, uh, ability to intercede in somebody's life to keep them safe and, and healthy and, and well and alive, uh, bump up against, um, right to defense, bump up against right to, um, offend, (laughs) right. And, 
I can yell all sorts of things at you and call you names, but you don't get to shoot me. Uh, so, you know, like there's a tension among all those things. And if you listen to certain people, they'll say that one is supreme above all the others, uh, right. depending on who you talk to. And I think where we've, we've kind of gone off the rails here with the hyperbolic partisan displays and all that stuff in the last, certainly in the last four years is that we've failed to have conversation and say, your view bears merit. So does mine. Now, where do we agree on this? And to your point, it's the, the, the lobby groups have now corrupted the political process to the point that we get laws in place that restrict autonomy or liberty in favor of somebody else's justice. And it's not that it's a bad thing. It's just not everybody's great cup of tea. It's, it works for somebody who's advocating for the thing, not the person who's being restricted. Sometimes that's really well, great. You know, we all agree I, that, I, with science that, you know, cigarettes are bad. But, you know, do we need to ban them? I don't know. I don't know. You Okay, you've we're going to jump back into the therapeutic model. This is Walk the Talk America, after all. A lot of the patients that you see are overwhelmed. They feel bad. They know some sure. things that might make them feel better. But there's all the issues of living their life that keep getting in the way. And at some point you have to go, okay, I understand the house is a mess. Can you live more simply so that you can focus on the things that are urgent for you right now? And that's such a generic description. It sort of fits because they have to know what's most urgent. I, I certainly can't. Sure. And hearing that description of mental health, uh, I think you just described the body politic. You just described what we do for a friend who's in uh, in a bad place and uh, hi, now he and I need to talk about firearms. You're getting cancer treatment. You're going to have cancer brain. I don't want you being able to make instantaneous life and death decisions when you're not all there. It's going to hurt. It's going to suck. You're going to be tired. You're going to feel things that I've only heard about, never experienced. They sound really bad. Can we, can we do this prudent step? Um, that's a incremental solution. It's not a, mm -hmm. oh, just make all the guns go away. Um, wow. Well, it's, no, it's, life's too complex. It's individual too. And, and when you have an individual conversation, you're affecting one person, right. not millions. And you have presumably have the credibility to be in that person's presence to have that conversation in the first place. Um, if you take a governor who's acting out of emergency powers and making unilateral decisions that are binding upon millions of people, that's not the agreed upon contract into which the citizens entered. The agreed upon contract was that it, that the sausage would get made through the legislative process with input and, and studies and that kind of thing. And that's not happening. And I think that's, that's, really what's upending a lot of this stuff and what's eroding a lot of confidence is elected leaders are there for a reason. Sure. And, you know, 50% plus one of the people decided that they were going to be the one to do the, the decision-making when the chips are down. If that person doesn't take that charge seriously to the point that they open their ears and listen to feedback from anybody besides their inner circle, will be it to them when election rolls around again. The problem is you can do a lot of damage in four years or two years or whatever right. time you're in office if given those, you know, right now we've got emergency powers in the face of a pandemic and not everybody's making the best decisions 
for the individuals. They're making it for the collective, but not everybody in the collective falls into the same bucket. Or I'm not even, I hope that's true, but in some cases they did what sounded good, but wasn't. Sure. Um, I I sent you this link just because it shocked me. You'd think that staying home would save lives when there's a pandemic until you realize that suicide, mental health, and addiction are serious illnesses, and they're proportionally far more prevalent than COVID Well, and, and the it, flu. Yeah, and, and again, if we, if we all had a, been in the same room to discuss this, or at least had our elected representatives in the same room to discuss this, said, all right, we all agree that deaths by COVID are the thing at the top of the list, and we'll sacrifice all this other stuff to make sure deaths by COVID are suppressed. Well, maybe maybe we could come to an agreement on that, but it's been very mercurial along the way as to what the priority is. Is it economy? Right. Is it is it taxation? Is it, uh, I mean, tax base? I should say. Is it um, is it deaths by COVID? Is it sicknesses by COVID? Is it hospitalizations from COVID? Is it mental health? Is it children's education? It's now all of a sudden we, you can't have multiple number one priorities. Right. Not at, not at one time anyway. And, and I think, I mean, I feel bad for our elected leaders in some regard because they are now, you know, facing all these competing, uh, you know, priorities, but have they slowed down and evaluated? And it's like, it feels like crisis, 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 crisis. Well, it's, I don't know, man. Like you can't constantly be on your heels, making decisions on your heels all the time. That's when bad things happen. And like I said earlier, we've got nine or 10 months worth of data now. The apparent, and we're making the same decisions that we were nine or 10 months ago. It baffles me. I don't understand right. it. Right. You, you would think, well, and, and to, to address some of that data, to pull it up front, we looked at Japan and when they looked at deaths by alcohol and suicide, those rose so much faster than COVID deaths that the, the, the prescription to uh, lock down the population was really malpractice. They have more suicides in a month than they've had COVID deaths over, you know, the last, what, year? It's maybe a year now that we've known about COVID. So, as you say, proportion is essential. And what may, look, old folks home, lockdowns, got it. No argument. School children doesn't fit. We, we need a sense of proportion. And one size doesn't fit all. How can, how can politicians now back up? Uh, that's what I hear you saying. Will they get excoriated by the media no matter what they do now? Well, I think they you have declared to have it an emergency. How can they back up? Yeah, I mean, you have to have a spine. I mean, you, you, that's what strong leadership is. It's admitting you, you screwed up and saying they're getting blistered anyway. <laughs> right. So, so cho- choose who's going to blister you, but at least make a decision. Don't, don't do this half measure stuff. That's, that's you, you, you're not killing the disease and you're not saving people like you're, you're hosed now either way. Take, take an affirmative stance one way or the other, uh, and then move from there and deal with the heat when it comes. Um, but I don't, I don't see a lot of that. I, I see a lot of wishy washy trying to, trying to, you know, make everybody happy. And we all know that that's not going to happen. I mean, there's an adage that's been around for a million years that says you can't do that. 
we, we, we screwed it up out of the shoot. I mean, it's the deadliest disease on the planet. We're all going to die, but you can still go to Home Depot and Lowe's right. <laughs> and grocery store. I mean, that, that right there in itself was just confusing. I mean, that would, you know, it's like, wait a minute. What, you know, it was weird. And we had this whole like apocalypse out there, but when you walked outside, everybody was just standing there. You know, it wasn't like a zombie, <laughs> you know, it's super confusing. And then it's like, you know, in the beginning, especially if you got in your car and you went to the grocery store, if you didn't, if you weren't told something was wrong, you would never know. I mean, maybe you'd be like, yeah, there seems to be a lot of people wearing some face masks, but, um, you know, that <laughs> you just wouldn't know. And I think, I think it's like the dipping your toe in and kind of half-assing it. I almost would have respected it more if they would have said, look, we're giving you a big chunk of money. Everybody stays home, get off the streets. I would have respected it more. I wouldn't have wanted it that way. But I, you know, anybody with half a brain that thinks about it is like, wait a minute, how's that normal that we can still all go pack in a home Depot? <laughs> yep. Um, well, we're, we're describing a larger situation because, and, and again, this is in my little area of recent expertise, if we look at what fire, so-called gun control and firearms safety legislation did, it's we we know it disarmed a lot of young women who became victims of sexual assault and then became victims of sexual battery because they couldn't protect themselves. We hate looking at that numbers because we go, wait a minute, I want to save lives. Uh, take guns off the street. You go, yeah, okay that's being dishonest because you don't want to look at what your the consequence of your ideas. I can, you know, I can respect almost anybody who's wrong if they're willing to listen. And, and Jake, you said that earlier in just another package. So here we are and we're on a guns and mental health podcast. And we're talking about government screwing up, um, not doing anything right. And, and, and it being very obvious now. And we're on the eve of a you know presidential installment of a guy who openly stated that he's going to expand gun restrictions. Um, what, what's, a, what's a listener to do? Because now we're, we're on the heels of the, the biggest firearms buy in history over the last several months. And a person who is, and who knows how the politics are going to shake out? Who knows how the special interests are going to, you know, influence this? But, but on its face, it sounds like this this person who's going to ostensibly lead the country isn't interested in personal self defense for the individual. Um, that sounds like more anxiety. That sounds like more reason to be concerned. On top of all the other reasons we've got to be concerned, um, what do we do with that information? Well, I can tell you what the firearms industry is going to do is they're going to make a lot of money. Um, <laughs> I, once again, going into the industry, not having any really background in it in terms of understanding the way that politics can sway something. Um, when we came out of Obama and got into the Trump slump, I kind of started wondering why more people in the firearms industry weren't down low voting for Hillary. <laughs> it, it, we're in this weird dynamic where, you know, the person that we perceive is best for our second amendment, right. Is the person that we should vote for 
which can financially uh, destroy many good people in the firearms industry. Um, I knew plenty of companies that were on their last, you know, breath of air. And then all this civil unrest happened and it was like an instant shot in the arm. They were back. Uh, (laughs) So (laughs) I can tell you from that standpoint, um, I think that Biden coming in will, will continue to keep this, you know, I guess this rocket ship going up. Um, who knows where it'll be in two years? Depends on what he does. Um, but we've been there before, and we've, we've you know, we were still going to have people fighting the good fight. The, the joke in many gun stores was a picture of President Obama saying, gun salesman of the year. Yeah. And now it will be, a, right next to that will be a picture of Biden and Harris going, hold my beer. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. And I think you're right. Um, I don't think that will have a to the degree perhaps that concealed carry the public, uh, uh, the ability to defend yourself in public is reduced. We'll see some upticks in crime, but I think that will be washed away, overpowered by sentencing reform. We already saw that. Uh, we saw it on the on the east and west coasts where when we said, gosh, you know, if you were a criminal, you can get right back out because you're just a criminal. Um, criminals then did what criminals do when the crime rate went up and we had more victims. Uh, short of that, I don't see, I don't anticipate, we'll, we'll spill a lot of ink over the discussion, but I don't see a lot that's going to happen. It's interesting you bring up that point about the the industry, Mike, because in my field, we we can't treat all the hurt that's going on right now. At our core, we want to work ourselves out of a job, but we're in a service field, so we can always, you know, go sell something. You guys are in, <laughs> you know, um, retail, and and there's 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 a finite amount of you know uh, stuff you can sell. And so it does, it is a little different, but, but at the core of both of those is a fundamental belief, right? And if the belief is I want people healed or the belief is people need to defend themselves, um, there's, there's this implied, I guess, uh, self-extermination. If you, if you, if you achieve your goal, uh, you have to, you have to go do something else. And, and I don't know that evil is ever going to go away, and I don't know that hurt is ever going to go away, so we'll probably always be forever employed. But the idea is that we, we've been programmed through corporatism to, to like vote against our own interests um, at, at their core, and, and it's nice to hear that, that there are still people out there who don't do that just to make a buck. <laughs> you know, they're still doing the right thing. Yeah, it's, it's a very, it's tough because a lot of my peers, I watch them struggle or I watch them go under. Um, And, you know, you kind of knew what the cause was. We could never, ever really get, you know, when people ask me, well, how did that all work out? You know, you had these roller coaster moments and that's never good for business. Like it's never good because people are, oh, did you, were you happy when that tragedy happened? It's like, no, no, believe it or not, we're sad about the tragedy. And we're also frustrated because we know that these sales aren't real. 
you know, and you can't get a handle, especially when you work in manufacturing or you work with manufacturers, manufacturers want forecasts because they have to order, you know, material. And then they have to get a shipping schedule. And when you have these yo-yo, when a yo-yo is like this, it's, it's like looking into a crystal ball. I don't know what I'm going to sell. I don't know what Ruger is going to do or Smith and Wesson who they have all the power, right? Cause they're, they're a machine. If they decide they want to drop all the prices on their guns to move stuff because they need to, you know, the fiduciary responsibility of the shareholders, you know, that's, that kills the little guys, you know, that was always tough on us. So we never could get a read and it's just, you know, it's an interesting time right now because you, you know, I've, I've talked to a few people that I know in the industry that work in some of the places I've talked, you know, some of the guys at arms Corps, they're like, we're not even taking on new business. We're not even looking for it right now. It wouldn't make sense. I can't even fit people in. If it goes bang, it sells. You know, it's, 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 it's weird times. And now, you know, that Biden's in there and there's going to be that fear because you're always going to have that guy. Like he can do something, he can do this. He can, and, and yeah, I mean, there, it's not incorrect, right? He can do executive orders. I mean, we've seen it done in the past, but um, it's going to create more of that get out there and go. Um, it's, it's a really good time right now to own an ammo company. Yeah. Right? If you can, <laughs> if you can get the raw materials from the mines which apparently right. is the problem. Well, and the good news is they're not in the United States, so they can get primers and they can get lead and they can't get brass. Yeah. I, I, I worry about the, the mental well-being of the citizenry, though, as, as it moves forward. Um, maybe, maybe we're not going to have as much, um, you know, rioting in the streets um, now that we don't have a cantankerous, inflammatory individual, you know, behind the Twitter pad. But... Um, but what happens when we're still all locked down, waiting for the virus to go away or the vaccine to take effect, and um, and and we're struggling to make ends meet, and we're struggling to connect w- with other human beings, and you overlay that with the threat of taking away somebody's ability to defend oneself, uh, you know, it's I, I worry. I worry that we're stripping away safety and security from people and not replacing with something. You lock somebody down. Like you said, Mike, it'd be great if a big giant, you know, check came along with it. You know, okay, we're going to, we're, we know we're going to take the hit on inflation, but we're going to just turn on the printing press and just print money and make sure that everybody has a, you know, ability to pay their rent and, and buy food. Okay. That's fine. That didn't happen. Uh, Now you're going to say, all right, everybody's still miserable and we're going to, threaten their ability to defend themselves against evil. I don't know, man. That's, I guess that's where we come in and we try to teach people to, you know, find, find peace in different ways, but oof, it's tough for my field. We had an experience in my area. We were hit with, in my area, two hurricanes, some next door really racked up three. And all of a sudden people had their lives terribly disrupted wearing a mask was the least of their concerns then uh, for some food, water, shelter. Many of them left the area. Many then as infrastructure was rebuilt, came back to try and put their lives together. And a lot of them just said, you know, this mask, I've got bigger problems. And the laws were there and we ignored them. I wonder if we will 
see these laws as not applying to us. They, they were made under questionable authority. They were made for somebody else in another situation and will say, doesn't apply to me. Yeah, I think we're already seeing that, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, but Jake, the red flag thing down here. You know, I some police officers reached out because they wanted to, you know, Metro wanted to to really tap into the mental health side of things and firearms. And, you know, it was right when the red flag law had taken effect. And I remember listening to the cops and I'm like, we can't, how are we going to enforce this? There's not even enough information. And I think when you have that type of, of mentality, so like Rob, to your point, like if you have police officers out there being like, I'm not going to go around being this mask police right now. We got bigger problems. Like roofs are being ripped off of our houses. People don't have, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I think, I think that there are a lot of people that will say, no, I can't, I can't enforce these laws or this law doesn't make any sense or show me any science or data that, that proves that this is going to help. No, Mike, you just, that's a gold mine. You just touched. If we were going to do red flag laws, right. Wouldn't the police have been at the cutting edge of that? Because they go, here's what I can do under the law now. Here's how I can incarcerate people, typically 72-hour holds. Here's, here's the standard of proof I need. Am I allowed to take just hearsay from a family member or a, co- or a, a, a doctor, a teacher? Oh, I need more power. I need less. This is what I need uh, for burden of proof. And this is the permanence with which... We're going to apply this correction, meaning it's a 72 hour hold. We're taking your guns. You're barred for life. You know, how, how, how big a hammer do they need? But we didn't do that. No, that right? was one of the big frustrations that we kept hearing was that law enforcement wasn't consulted and neither were the mental health community. Right. Hugely right. frustrating. We had, well, uh, we had legislation by media press release. What would sound good in a 30-second soundbite? And as you say, life's more complex than that. So right. it's, easy, it's easy, though, when you're like, it's, it's, it's like people that I had a friend when we were voting for the transfer law thing a few years ago. Um, he told me what he voted for on it. And his explanation to me was great if you only thought about it one way. Because the way he interpreted the transfer laws, you shouldn't be able to just hand your gun to a gangbanger. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, he never thought about the the suicide or taking it from a friend who's in crisis angle or, you know, handing it to a family member um, because he, he only had that view. Like, hey, right. this has got to be positive because the way it was written on the form, right? And I think it's easy for us to not really dive into red flag laws, especially if you're not a gun person and just say, well, they're only going after this particular person, whatever they have in their head, right? Right. It's easy to see the whole world like that. Like, yeah, if this guy's on angel dust and he's running down the street naked and he's shooting, like, yeah, everybody thinks that that person shouldn't have a firearm. And there are already laws on the books to stop that (laughs) or, you know, go after that. Um, I always say it'd be interesting. uh, This would be a great game. Take all the influencers, take all the people that have podcasts and have a game show called Write the Perfect Red Flag Law, if you can. <laughs> Firearms industry people. You get like $2 million if you write something that everyone would be like, that makes sense. Because it's so hard. <laughs> um, 
there's a guy, Phil Journey, um, was a legislator in Kansas. Kansas? I hope, oh, I hope I didn't mess this up. Also a judge. And he goes, legislation is really hard because society is complex. And every time you, and he knows this from the bench, you know, I can tell somebody what to do, but it's real easy for me to make things worse. And he's seen that. Um, uh, I, I'll, I'll carry coffee into that meeting where we're going to write the first perfect red flag law. Cause I don't think I'm smart enough to untangle that ball of string. That's it's almost impossible. You know, so I, and I think also too, like that makes it so the average person that's in the firearms community or like gun culture, second amendment, if they, they don't want to think about that, you know what I mean? So it's easy just to default to it's bad. It's evil. Da, 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 right. Like not think past that. Um, and I think it goes both ways, right? It's easier for the people that don't understand how it could hurt you or don't understand firearms culture to be like, I don't care. That's perfect. that's that's the beauty of walk the talk america we're saying they're both sides hi we know people in our own culture who we want to red flag because life is complex it has its ups and downs and when you're on one of the downs you forget that it's coming back okay well i'll tell you you know talk about the willy-nilly herky-jerky way of uh, authoring legislation that can actually harm more people than it helps is one of those things that erodes confidence in our basic institutions and Mm. um it's not it's not super hard to write a better red flag law i've I've taught this enough now (laughs) over the last uh 11 months that I, i teach it to cops i teach it to clinicians i teach it to anybody who will listen and i have a nice little powerpoint and it and it's awesome the one thing that can absolutely be adjusted immediately is the language pertaining to burden of proof. And I'm so glad you mentioned that because the path to rights restriction is so much easier and clearer than the path to restoration. For example, most, most of the laws mirror each other, so I'm not, I'm not saying something that's not applicable anywhere else when I cite Nevada law. Nevada law says that to file the application for a restriction, a restraining order in this case, it's a temporary protection order, for, but it's for guns, right? Uh, the application can come from a family member or law enforcement. Family member has to reasonably suspect that harm can befall self or others through a firearm. That's it. Reasonable suspicion. That's pretty low on the, on the rung, uh, on the ladder. Law enforcement to file the application, they have to have um, probable cause. That's, that's a step up. The judge, when the judge gets the application, can issue the protection order upon preponderance of evidence presented in the application. So that's still pretty low. Preponderance of evidence isn't much, especially when the, the, the thing that got you there is suspects. Now, the order gets issued. You can have it be temporary, no more than seven days, but within that seven days, you can file for an extended, and that extended can be no fewer than three months and no longer than a year. Within that three months to year's time, you can ask for it to be uh, repealed, and the issuing party uh, or the applicant can ask for that. But here's the problem. In order to get the dissolution of the order, you have to have clear and convincing evidence that the person is not a harm to self or others. That's the top of the chain. 
That's that's yeah. beyond a reasonable doubt. We convict people for murder and send them away for life for less than clear and convincing evidence. But we're we're talking clear and convincing evidence to get your rights back. You can't tell me that the legislators who wrote that didn't know what they were doing. Because yeah. despite what we want to think of our elected officials, most of them are pretty smart. Some of them are mouth breathers, but most of them are pretty smart and they do their homework, especially on a hot button issue like that. I think they knew exactly what they were doing. And it was not intended for as temporary of a time frame as we, we were all led to believe. If it were, they would have clearly, and here's number two that could clearly be identified. In the exemptions to the law for background checks, for example, because uh, they, they walk hand in hand. There's two, there's two laws. One is red flag. The other is how do you, how do you keep somebody's guns from them uh, without going through a background check? Some of the exemptions are executive or an estate, um, uh, displays and demonstrations like performances, um, a whole list of things. Uh, at the range, um, if you're transferring to somebody who's immediately present. Okay, one of them is to prevent uh, imminent harm to self or others, uh, a, a temporary transfer is allowed for the immediate purpose of. Well, the problem is they didn't define temporary or immediate. So is that... Nine, nine seconds? Is it, is it three days? Is it 30 days? I don't think a judge is ever going to go for more than, you know, a day. Um, but absent a definition in that chapter of law, there, if it ever goes to court, uh, and you don't want to be accused of a gross misdemeanor in Nevada or a felony elsewhere, you're going to have to define what temporary is. Yes, your honor, I held these guns for this person because they were in a mental health crisis for the period of three weeks until they got their appointment or whatever happened. And they go, three weeks? That's way too long. You clearly violated the law. That's not temporary. That's not immediate. And then we're, we're reaching for Merriam-Webster off the shelf to define what those, those words mean. Well, and that's a problem. So we could just define that. That would help, too. That would be a nice workaround. And, and part of the antidote is, well, Judge, I, th I thought that was a long time, but when I contacted my lawyer, yeah, And then he contacted specialists and then he tried to get a judge to adjudicate this, to tell me what I should do with these officially. They still haven't been gotten back to me. And now I am here in front of you. So I tried to do it in the most expeditious manner, but it turns out you were the most immediate remedy available. Sure. But you're hundreds, weeks, hundreds so. or thousands of dollars in, in legal costs incurred at that point, just to defend doing the right thing. A right. third option is you work in a good Samaritan clause. <laughs> right. Uh, where you can just take things under re reasonable suspicion of, of doing the right thing. Right. Um, but, but either way, it's, it's not unfixable. It's not an unsolvable problem. What, what we have to do though, is we have to get enough people on the gun side to rally to the cause and be willing to meet in the middle and drop the whole, any rights restriction is a violation of my ability to walk the earth right. stuff. Cause that, yeah. that doesn't go over well in legislative chambers. Um, we gotta be reasonable. <laughs> The way you just brought it up, I thought was smart. There's the, the we're faced with the issue of competing harms. Mm -hmm. Why did you give your niece a firearm? Because she had a stalker. It was Saturday evening. She'd fled to a new location. We couldn't get her to a gun shop to do all the paperwork, and which we did as soon as those opportunities arose. Why did you take those guns illegally from your neighbor? Because I thought uh, we faced a greater risk had I not. 
Judge, you know, uh, the world isn't perfect. As soon as we could do it uh, through uh, formal channels, we did so. Let, let's face it, maybe we're asking our legislators to have a law that works all the time instead of expecting that human beings will make it right. Yeah, well, and, and you and I can articulate that, and we're not afraid of going in, into the courtroom. But for the broader community... It's hard. They're not even yeah. gonna. They're not even gonna attempt it. So what do we end up with? People taking their own lives because they don't think they have a way out. That's right. the. That's the result. Um, gotcha. We got the the domestic violence survivor who uh, is is in a moment of crisis because her PTSD flares for what one reason or another, and mentions this to a concerned family member who then asks for an ERPO uh, to be applied, you know, applied <laughs> and executed, and then. During the time that she's her gun is confiscated by the by the authorities, the ex comes back and assaults her again. You know, it's like, what are we doing? What are we doing here? Um, it's this is not good. It's not good, and the messaging is not good. If, if anybody wants to, who's listening wants to see how complicated this is, they should look into the David Anastasi story. Um, Jake, I think we've talked about this in the past, but this is a guy who had to red flag his own father. Who's like a staunch two a supporter. It's like a twilight zone episode. You know, like, what do you do? He had reached out to me because we had met at at a function in Colorado and, and I kind of walked with him through that journey. He was keeping me posted and it plays out like a movie. Um, it, it really does play out kind of, in two ways, um, like a Twilight Zone episode, but a dark Forrest Gump because his father had sustained a brain injury and was a wealthy man, like super wealthy. And to watch the decline and where it went. And like I said, I, I, we don't have time to unpack all that. There's there's a podcast episode. And Jake, maybe we need to have we David on. Him on. Yeah. yeah, because there's been so much that's happened since since that. But you know, it's one of those issues. It's funny because I spoke to both the father and I still keep in touch with David when, when it was all said and done. Um, and I think it may, it maybe it's still going on to this point about getting his rights restored. Right. But when it was all said and done. It was, it was funny when you talk to them because they had two different versions. You know, it's, you always say is my version, the, your version and the truth is somewhere in the middle. Um, but it, it's, it's a really interesting study. And I haven't had anybody in the firearms community be able to, to really argue that maybe the guns shouldn't have, you know what I mean? Should have, shouldn't have, you shouldn't have taken away the guns. Um, because there's so many just little pieces of the story where it's like, yeah, something bad might happen and it didn't. And, but, but there's so much nuance in this topic that I think that that's a perfect example of why we need to come together. You know, I, I actually would love to have David talk to more mental health clinicians and tell that story because it's fascinating. And that's the other uh, piece of this too, is that we're fighting as, as clinicians is we can't take your guns and people think that we can. And I get where they think that is because New Jersey's red flag law doesn't say law enforcement or, or family member. It says any person. So I can understand why firearms owners would be suspicious of getting counseling treatment when they acknowledge in session, like, yeah, I'm really struggling. I'm down in the dumps. I can't get out of bed. Uh, oh, by the way, 
going out and shooting in the desert is the only way I alleviate my stress. And we, in our ignorance, would say something like, oh my gosh, you sound like you're a danger to self or others, and pick up the, the bat phone to, to, to the government and have the deputies show up the next day. So I get why they would think that, because it is plausible. It's not possible, really, unless we want to throw our ethics out the window and sacrifice our licenses, but it's plausible. And, um, it, it's just, it's just hard. It's hard bat- battle in that, that piece of misinformation. There you go. And that's that absolute you were talking about. You either trust or you don't. Right. And I, I've been, now here's one of those things. Have you ever been in a m- mental facility where you got locked in and locked out and there was a guy with keys and a buzzer and no, but I've worked in them. Right. I worked in. Well, I, yeah. I walked into them as a patient because one of the clinicians there did marriage therapy on the side at a university, and this was before we were my wife and I were married. This is premarital counseling. I go, hey, let's talk to a pro. How are we? How are we approaching this? But even then, and and we didn't have severe issues. We're just going. Wow, we really have to trust this man with what we feel as deeply as we can reach into our hearts. And I think that is, thank goodness, usually reciprocated in the mental health community. They go, oh, now I can really, I've yet to meet a clinician who goes, aha, with what you told me, now I can really screw you over. Just. Yeah, we're not it's really possible, trained. but it doesn't happen. Yeah, we're not really trained to do that, um, but it's it's <laughs> it's possible with. With a lot of people who hold sensitive information, your financial advisor, your attorney, your uh, orthopedist, your dentist, like there's a lot of people in your life who hold really sensitive information. And most of us are guided by codes of ethics that are sometimes adopted by reference into law. So being unethical, therefore, is also tantamount to being illegal. Um, But it just, excuse me, it's just so rare that that's why Bernie Madoff makes the news. It almost right. never happens. And when it does, tons of people are ruined. And those people hopefully will not never go back to, you know, financial investors or financial advisors again. Hopefully they go, well, that was that's crazy. That's a one off anecdote. There, there's hundreds of thousands of financial advisors across the country and this one managed to screw over a lot of people. Um, but the odds are so statistically insignificant at that point of that happening that you go trust again, you know. And you right. don't get driven by fear or history. Um, but see, then you look at the New York Safe Act, right? I mean, then we have issues like that. That you know, I know for a fact, like Mental Health America hates that. Then the Safe Act, they think it stigmatizes people that you know may have a mental illness that is temporary. And then we we've seen examples where it lasts for a long time, right? Um, I always tell that story about the kid who went through a bad breakup at 20 and didn't realize that doing the right thing by checking himself in um, would cost him his firearm rights six, seven years later when he went to go buy a handgun for protection and he completely grown out of that kid who was upset at that one moment in his life because of a breakup. Well, I can't, I can't shoot it. I can't shoot a gun with a cast on my hand either. And I broke my hand a year, year and a half ago, uh, two years ago. I don't remember. And, the he, the hand healed, right? Like I don't have a I don't have a cast on anymore. The the bone healed. So does your mind. 
so this idea of like, you know, mental illness and perpetuity constantly, you know, present in your life, uh, forever disfiguring you, uh, to the point that you have to lose access to something like a firearm and why just firearms? Why not driving? Uh, right. <laughs> right? <laughs> like I'm going to harm a lot of people driving my car. Um, it, it's just ludicrous. Like the, the idea of mental illness being permanent is absolutely ridiculous. Cause if it, if that were even a thing, my profession would cease to exist. Couldn't help anybody. They couldn't recover. So we need to ditch that idea altogether. But we're running well, long I'm, on time. We should and, probably and, wrap up. Um, <laughs> get on that soapbox again. Uh, all right, maybe skip one episode, but they, you, don't don't throw it away. Keep it in the keep it in the office there with you, because no, they don't know. It sounded like a good idea at the time. It was a simple solution, and life is more complex. Okay, now we need to make room in our culture for people to have moments of crisis and recover. We do. Completely. We do. We do. I love the way you said that. Yep. You you can use it. Thank you. I will. (laughs) I I will give you credit too. It's like uh, fast times at Ridgemont High. (laughs) I'll put it on the board. (laughs) No, I really do. I, I, I appreciate you saying that. That was a really cool way of phrasing it because I have to, I have to try to explain that to people of what Walk to Talk America is trying to do, right? And right. the way you said it was great. Okay. Mike, ask your question. Yeah, Rob, how do you tend to your mental health? Whoa. Uh, in, in some sense, we all do that every couple of days. We have things we do that keep us healthy. Oh, you exercise, you do things in moderation, including have a wild time with the guys where nobody's getting moderate. And then, okay, once in a while, um, when I feel down and my life gets kind of stressful, I, I do enjoy shooting. That's fun. But sometimes, you know, it's in the middle of the night and things are bothering me. I go clean up. Uh, I do something easy. Literally I'll go do the laundry. I'll clean up my, my wife goes, why are you in your shop in the middle of the night? It's dark and cold and windy. I go, yeah, but in the morning, things will be more straightened up, and it's it's a step toward organizi- organizing my life. That's really cool. I don't. That's a new one. I haven't heard that one yet, and, I, and it validates sometimes when I get up in the middle of the night and have to go downstairs and just do something. <laughs> I'm doing it unconsciously, but now that you've said that, I could do it with intent. Okay. That's awesome. Well, I, I, I bet you've seen your wife, you know, honey, why are you up doing the laundry in the middle of the night? Because I'm frustrated, and it just makes my life simpler, right? Same same answer different day it's a little bit out of jordan peterson's uh book i think you know it's like you want to you want to get your life in order start by making your bed making your bed (laughs) (laughs) that's good all right well thank you for taking the time this is good and i i I mean we didn't even touch most of the stuff that you put down the show notes or even the text messages he sent me but maybe we'll just spend an entire podcast talking deep about deep things next time um anything else michael well, that's it, man. You've been great. I, I knew I knew it was going to be great with you, though. I've, we've had some great conversations in the past. So, We're going to have to Zoom more often. Uh, what is this? What, that's a new business we can all get in. Mail all your Zoom buddies the alcohol so you're all consuming a similar thing. So it's almost like being at the bar that you can't be at anymore. I had uh, Kirkland coffee this morning in my Silver Springs nugget mug. Yeah, see, that would work out. Hey, Keurig. Well, on behalf of Walk the Talk America and 
our family here, as well as the Zephyr Wellness family, the Arms Corps family, and everybody who is supporting our mission. We thank you for continuing to share our content. As I say repeatedly, this doesn't do any good locked up in our heads. We need to get it out so people can benefit and the whole community can get better. Thank you, and we wish you all great mental wellness. Bye-bye.